Hi, I'm Pastor Jason from Yokine Baptist Church, and this is a sermon recorded at one of our Sunday morning services. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. Enjoy. As, um, as we move towards the second part of this sermon, we're going to be focusing on our foundational beliefs as Christians. And, um, you know, if you were, if you were in a, uh, like a, a more liturgical type church, like an Anglican or a Catholic church or whatever, um, they have as part of their service, they usually say the Apostles' Creed, um, which basically is the essence of what we've just sung. Uh, and it's really, you know, it's really great to have, you know, sometimes to be reminded of what it is that makes us who we are. See, some people have gone away from it. Some people have drifted. In 1978, there was a mass tragedy in a place called Jonestown, uh, Guyana. Um, 912 members of a group called the People's Temple died after their cult leader, Jim Jones, ordered them to take cyanide that had been put into um, some cordial, basically. So you, when you hear people talk about, oh, he's drinking the Kool-Aid, that's what it's referring to. Someone who's willing to, to follow some kind of radical leader and do something so crazy. Out of the 912 people who died, 276 were children. And if, people, if anyone refused to take the poison, they were either forced to or they were shot and even parents were dipping it in eyedroppers and giving it to their children. So it's a pretty tragic kind of event. Uh, in 1993, uh, in America, the ATF and later on the FBI laid siege to a compound in Waco, Texas. And a guy there um, who, gave his name, who, who changed his name to David Koresh formed a group called the Branch Davidians. And David Koresh claimed to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, they refused to surrender to authorities. It ended up in a big standoff that ended up in a fiery inferno that killed 54 adults and 21 children. Don't you wish those people had taken the words of Jesus seriously? At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The elect is Christians, those who are chosen by God. You know, it's hard to believe in a church that has so much opposition like Paul faced at Ephesus. You know, you can, we look around here and, you know, you, you just probably just can't even picture it. You know, people going around spreading false doctrine, attacking the apostles, you know, attacking the pastor. Uh, it, what a mess that church was in. You know, to the best of Paul's efforts, he was trying to establish this church and false teachers just kept coming. They just kept coming and made it so difficult for Timothy to be pastor of that church. And so Paul began, when we looked last week at, this, at the second chapter, of the, we looked at the first half of it, uh, Paul gave us three metaphors for life and ministry. He talked about being like a soldier, uh, like an athlete and like a farmer. And in the second half of this chapter, he then gives us three new pictures. This time, pictures of an unashamed worker, a clean vessel, and a gentle servant. So let's have a look at some of these images. Now, Hymenaeus, let's just call him Hymie for short, because his name comes up a lot and it's too long. 
Um, he was introduced in Paul's first letter to Timothy. So we read Paul says, uh, Jaime and Alex, who I have handed over to Satan in order that they be taught not to blaspheme. See, their behaviour was becoming so damaging, it was affecting the faith of other people in the church, that Paul eventually had to excommunicate them. He had to put them out of the church. This was the final act of church discipline when everything else had failed. You know, we had a child that had a drug problem. And our final act of discipline, the only way to try and bring him back to us, was to kick him out of the house and stop enabling what was happening. You know, Paul said in Corinthians, he talked about another guy who had a similar problem. He said, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. See, the goal of this discipline that Paul had put these people through was not because he wanted to punish them, not because he wanted to send them away from the church forever. It was because he wanted to draw them back. And this was a desperate last step. Kick them out of the church. Let them see what it's like outside God's kingdom. And hopefully, somehow, that will encourage them to repentance and to come back to God. So, let's move into the letter to Timothy. And that's, that, that, sets us, that sets us our context. Uh, and that brings us to our reading today. So, he says, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them about quarrelling. Words, words. You know, Donald Trump says, I have the best words. We all have lots of words. And sometimes we argue over such little, minute, silly little things. And Paul says, don't get stuck in all those stupid arguments. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who is not ashamed and one who correctly handles the truth. The call here is to be an unashamed worker. Now, the obvious assumption that Paul makes here is that Christians will talk about their faith. That's what happens. That's what's, you know, if you're excited about Jesus, if you love the Lord, surely he's going to come up in your conversation somewhere. And Paul says, what I want you to do is I want your conversation to be such that you never need to be ashamed, that you can be proud of the name of Jesus. You know, and so Paul is concerned about how we go about talking about our faith to people. And there's, a, there's an interesting expression in there. He says, correctly handle the word of truth. It's a fascinating expression. And what it actually means in the, in the, in the Greek is to cut straight. That's the literal meaning of the word. It's, uh, the concept comes from Roman roads. And so there's an example of a, uh, of a Roman road for you. Romans were great at building roads and they could build through just about anything. And, the, you know, you had to cut the roads straight and level. And some of these roads are still standing today because they were cut so straight and level. And Paul says, that is how you should be teaching the word of God to people. You know, it reminds me of John the Baptist. Uh, we read in the Gospels that John went around preaching a baptism of repentance and there it quotes from Isaiah and it says, He is a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make the paths straight. Cut a straight path. And he go and you know, well, some people are not really good at cutting a straight path. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I know some preachers who can you know, circle the runway forever and never land the thing, you know. 
I have an expression that if I don't strike all after 20 minutes, I should stop boring. And I had trouble with this sermon today doing that. I started this thing on Monday, and by Wednesday, I had about nine pages of text. Now, my normal sermon is five pages, and I take about four to five minutes per page. But I had nine pages, so it was almost double. The hardest problem I had with this sermon was not finding stuff to tell you about. It was what could I leave out and still give you the best of this passage. There's so much in there. So Paul talks about cutting straight to it. And he contrasts this straight cutting with the false teachers. Now, the false teachers in this state, uh, in, in this church in Ephesus that Paul found himself they were in the beginning stages of what was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism just comes from a Greek word that means knowledge. These were people who believed they had special knowledge, you know, like Jim Jones, like David Koresh, special knowledge that no one else knows. You've got to have our knowledge if you want to be saved. And these guys, Jaime and Phil had believed they had reinterpreted the resurrection and they alone knew the meaning of what it was to be raised. And so they didn't actually believe in a physical resurrection, that Jesus actually rose bodily from the death and that we too will rise physically. They just spiritualised the whole thing. Oh, they knew the meaning better than Paul did. You know, Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead and neither will you. It's some sort of a spiritual thing. The resurrection's already taken place. And those of us with the special knowledge are the ones who have been resurrected. And so because of this, it was damaging and harming the faith of people. People were going, but if the resurrection's already happened, have I missed it? Am I lost? Am I damned to hell? because of this so-called special knowledge. And so Paul says this, he says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Now, I'll just throw on aside there. There's a picture here of people growing in ungodliness. You know, throughout Paul's letters, he wants us to grow in maturity, and he wants us to improve and get better and better. And he says, because of the way these guys are going, they're in the opposite direction. They're getting worse and worse and worse. They're growing backwards. And their teaching is going to spread like gangrene. You know, and this is before the days of really good medicine. There's only one way to deal with gangrene back in those days, it was to chop off the limb or watch the person die. Among these people are Hybe and Phil who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection's already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's foundation stands firm and it is sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. You know, in contrast to these false teachers and their ever-shifting interpretation Paul says that our faith is built on a solid foundation. You know, back in, uh, back in those days, in fact, we still do it today even, but we do it more symbolically. But back in those days, they started a building and the first stone they put down was a nice big cornerstone or foundation stone and it had an inscription on it. And if it was a really important um, building, it might have the, the Roman emperor's seal on it as well. And that was the foundation stone for their buildings. 
Paul says that our foundation stone is not made up of empty words, but it's built on a solid truth. Jesus Christ has defeated death and he has opened the way to eternal life to those that follow him. In Isaiah we read, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay in Zion. Zion's just a name for the mountain that, Israel, that Jerusalem was on. I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. A firm, solid foundation. The next picture that Paul gives Timothy is one of a clean vessel. And... In this, what he's picturing, if you can picture a large home, a wealthy home that had lots of implements in it, you know, uh, let's go beyond the knives and the forks uh, and look at some of the vessels. And, and Paul says there are a couple of types of vessels. Some of them are used for special tasks and some for menial tasks. So in a large home, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for special purposes, some for common use. Think of it as a contrast between, you know, a silver goblet that you might use for a toast uh, and the garbage bucket. You know, God says, Timothy says, God can use us for special purposes. You know, we get up at a wedding and give a toast with this beautiful fancy goblet. Or you can be like that bucket over there, which was the chamber pot, where people went to the toilet and then they took it outside and dipped it out. It's not exactly a subtle metaphor, is it? But then Paul says something interesting. He implies that people can change, that we can go from being common vessels and become special vessels. And so he says, those who cleanse themselves from the latter, he's talking about there the common use ones, will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared for any good work. So flee the desires, evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with all those who call out to the Lord. So Paul shifts the image a little bit. He's saying it's not so much about being gold and silver versus being clay. It's about being special and useful as opposed to being, you know, kind of common. And Paul says we can change. And he gives us, he gives us three beautiful little expressions about these special vessels. He says that a, that a vessel can be made holy, you know, set apart for God. It can be useful to God. And they're nice. We all like to think we're useful. No one likes to be called useless. But he says we can be useful. God can use us. And we are prepared for good work. What more can anyone desire? To be set apart for God's use. Um, who, who doesn't want to be useful for God? Paul, in the first chapter, spent a lot of time talking about a guy called Nisiphorus, who had ministered to Paul while he was in prison, and Paul said, this guy has been so useful to me. It was a great compliment to him. You know, it's not that God needs us. You know, God is the ultimate. God is the creator. God is over everything. He doesn't need us, but he loves to use us. And that's a, that's a great joy to be able to be used by God. And we celebrate that in the church. And we, uh, you know, that's why, that's why we put out, you know, a few weeks back, a, 
a survey form, a participation form, where we get people to join in and be part of the church. You know, do things like playing music or handing out the offering bags or whatever it might be. We love to feel useful and we love God to use us in these ways. It's a gift. And God says if we turn from evil and turn from this godless chatter and keep our eyes on this firm foundation, that's who we can be. People who are useful to him. So how do we become these special vessels? How do we go from being the chamber pot to the, to the silver goblet? Well, Paul says the action that's required is cleansing. You know, even these false teachers can go from being the chamber pot to being the goblet if they repent and come back to God. And so Paul describes this cleansing in, in both positive and negative terms. You know, in the, in the negative or the defensive, he says to flee from evil. You know, you remember back in the book of Genesis when Joseph had been sent off into slavery and he was in the house of a guy called Potiphar and Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. And Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, right? So you run away from evil. But then to pursue good, is a positive action. It's an offensive action. And Paul's process here, is, it's very simple. I mean, what, what's, a, what's a fancy word we use that says to turn away from this direction and go in that direction? Repent. That's all that means. You know, when, Paul, when John went around preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is in hands. That's all it means. It means turn away from evil, turn back towards God. The third picture that Paul gives to Timothy is a gentle servant. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. There's a difference between quarrelling or strife, depending on your translation, same thing, and controversy. Strife comes out of my need to win an argument for the sake of winning. You know, strife is an ego contest between me and my opponent. Strife is usually marked by people attacking each other and trying to prove each other right. Controversy, on the other hand, is different. Controversy is inevitable if you proclaim the name of Christ. See, Jesus himself is a source of controversy. When you say Jesus alone is the way to God, that's a controversial statement. People struggle with that. Either he is or he isn't God's son. That's a source of controversy. Everywhere Jesus went, he was a source of controversy. And so the process of sharing the gospel, it will lead to that kind of controversy because people will not want to accept that. But we don't have to be quarrelsome or get into strife when we're doing it. There's a difference and Paul, and Paul tells us how we achieve it. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. They must be able to teach, and they must not be resentful. We'll unpack those three in a second. Opponents need to be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. Now, Paul's not talking theoreticals here. 
You know, he's not sort of talking, talking in terms of metaphor. He's, being, he's talking about a real, actual situation that Timothy found himself in. Timothy had pe- people who were running around his church spreading false doctrine. They were opponents of his and opponents of Paul's. And Paul says, this is how I want you to deal with them. Paul gives us three qualities that will avoid quarrelling. The first is kindness or gentleness. You know, have you ever had the, the Mormons or the JWs come to your door? You know, they kind of start off gentle, but then they get kind of more and more aggressive. You know, they're like, they're like the worst case salesman. You know, when you, you know, oh, I like that car, but no, no, well, come on in. We'll make a deal. We'll make it, you know. They get very aggressive. They get pushy. And it's kind of hard to be gentle in response to that, isn't it? It's much easier to kind of get into attack mode. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Easy to get into an argument. But gentleness is a mark of maturity. Go to Galatians 5 and look at what Paul describes of as the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is among them. Gentleness is a mark of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's being sensitive to the feelings and needs of others. Acting to help people, not to hurt them. Um, you can kind of picture, picture a rugby player. Big, strong, huge, lots of power. But he's holding his baby daughter in his hands. Gentle, loving. You know, all that man's strength and power are devoted to protecting that little child. That's gentleness. To be able to teach is the second quality Paul says we need. You know, the best teachers are those who can actually draw out of others. You know, teaching is not just about sort of getting someone there, opening their head and pouring in a pile of knowledge. Um, Because usually it kind of, you know, most of it pours out the other end. But the root meaning of the word educate means to draw out. You know, it's a much more positive thing. It's not just about me giving knowledge. It's about drawing, drawing it out of the person, showing them that deep within they know God, drawing that out of them, finding ways to, to stimulate their thinking, finding ways to get their behaviour to respond to the truth in Jesus Christ rather than just kind of imposing on someone. So that's able to teach. And this requires patience. Uh, in the NIV it says not resentful. It means showing patience. You know, in in Timothy's case, and sometimes in our case, it might mean putting up with someone who's being very aggressive towards you, someone who's being very hurtful, someone who may be calling your names or swearing at you or whatever. And Paul says, you can't lose your cool. You can't lose your cool. You've got to be able to cope with that kind of aggression. So the whole point is not to win an argument. The whole point was, is not to show off my superior brain. The whole point is to win that person to Jesus. You know, Paul has had to use some really tough discipline in the church. You see, he's got a whole family of people that he's looking out for. You know, we, the, the scripture talks about us as being shepherds, as pastors and our congregation as being our flock and our job is to protect our flock. And so sometimes we need to exercise discipline for someone that is going to harm our flock. But the end goal is not to kick them out. 
say, go on, go to hell. That's not the end goal. The end goal is to hopefully they will repent and be able to come back. And when we behave the way Paul's talking about with that kind of gentleness and that kind of patience, that has the potential to bring them back. But the quarrelsome, the argumentative, the aggression, that's just going to drive them away forever. Paul is working hard to ensure that the church survives him. Remember that at this point, Paul is in prison. His time is almost up. He's expecting himself to be executed at any time. And because he was in prison, people were going, does Paul really have the truth of God? Do we really want to follow someone who's a criminal? And so Paul is trying to make sure that Timothy and his church in Ephesus have a strong foundation to build on for the future. And so in this passage, Paul is giving advice to Timothy on how to stand firm against false teachers. He gives him some great advice on the kind of character Timothy needs to have. You notice that most of what Paul talks about is not sort of giving us argument skills or debating you know, knowledge. It's more about character. And he's saying, Timothy, this is the kind of character you're going to need in order to deal with these people. And Paul warns him against getting into silly arguments. Actually, in the, um, if you go into the Greek, it more says to Timothy, stop getting involved in these silly arguments. So maybe Timothy had already fallen into the trap of trying to debate with these guys at their level. And Paul says, stop doing that. It's not worth it. I just want you to preach the foundational truths. And in the end, Paul says to Timothy, you're going to have to cast them out in order to save them. At the end of the day, that, can be, that, that may have to be the final result. But above all, Paul says, our faith rests on a solid, firm foundation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to pay for our sins. Three days later, he literally, bodily, rose from the dead. And because of that, he has conquered death. He has power over sin, and he offers that to us. And if we are his children, we are assured. Paul talks about that we have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection. It's something we look forward to. It's not just a a spiritual thing. It's an eternity thing. We are going to be raised to eternal life. This is the cornerstone of our faith. And whatever else people want to debate, and people can debate all sorts of things in the church. Should I wear robes? Should I wear a suit, you know, when I'm up here? Uh, What role do we allow for women in the church? Uh, What form of church government should we have? People can have all those sorts of arguments. None of them are foundational. They're the differences between all the denominations. I had someone who came to the grand final yesterday and they're saying, oh, I used to go to a a uniting church. What's a Baptist church? What's the difference? And I had to say to them, the difference is basically cosmetic. The way we do things, the kind of clothes we wear, the kind of form of service we might have. But we all believe in the foundational faith that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. All of us believe that. 
That's why we're brothers and sisters. That's the foundational truth on which we cannot compromise. Will it be controversial? Yes. But don't let it lead to strife. And all that depends on our character and our attitude as we're talking to people like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's letter to Timothy. And although he might not have enjoyed it, we thank you that you put him through the difficulty of having these false teachers in his midst because it teaches us how to deal with people when we're sharing our faith. And Lord, we want to be useful to you. We want to be your special vessels. We want to share your word with everyone. We want to draw people into your kingdom. But Lord, help us to do that the right way. Help us to be more concerned with their hearts and their salvation than we are with just proving ourselves right. Help us to care more about their heart with you than we care about our intelligence or our knowledge or whatever we might think we're so proud of. Lord, help us to be people who are gentle, people who are, who are eager to teach and draw out from others rather than just people who want to argue and fight. And Lord, sometimes we do the wrong thing. Sometimes we do behave like the way Paul's telling us not to. And so we, we ask you to forgive us, Lord. We repent of that. We say, help us to be people who always want to approach others with gentleness and kindness. Because Lord, we want to draw them to you. And we know that ultimately you are a God of love, a God of forgiveness. And we want them to receive the eternal life that we know is ours as well. So we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement that it has and we thank you for the challenge that it has. And we commit ourselves again, Lord, and we say, Lord, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. A special thanks to those that have donated to us online, enabling us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. Click the link in the description or visit yokinebaptist.church to find out other ways you can support us. If you enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.